only thing we can be sure of about the future is that it will be absolutely fantastic. Five, four, three, two, one. Hello, and welcome to Into the Impossible, a podcast about how we imagine and how what we imagine shapes what we do. From the Arthur C. Clarke Center for Human Imagination at UC San Diego. I'm Patrick Coleman, and today we're bringing you an interview between our associate director, Brian Keating, the astrophysicist and author of the recent book, Losing the Nobel Prize, with one of the preeminent scientific minds of the 20th and 21st century, Freeman Dyson. Before we get into the interview, I do want to just let you know about a program that we have going at the Clark Center this year, if you're in the San Diego area. And the program is called San Diego 2049. So this series of programs, which we're organizing with the School of Global Policy and Strategy, will use the imagination and narrative tools of science fiction to stimulate complex thinking about the future and the ways we can shape it through policy, technology, innovation, culture, and social change. We're going to have a series of events here on campus throughout the year, including a lecture by writer Werner Vinge on October 12th, and a world-building workshop for UCSD graduate students led by Ann Pendleton-Julian. And one of the exciting things about San Diego 2049 is that graduate students at UCSD can participate in the program, develop their own future scenarios, and compete at the end of the year with their projects, and along the way, earn a certificate in speculative design for policymaking. So if you're a graduate student at UCSD or you know one, be sure to let them know. And if you're just in the area, please join us for any of the public events throughout the year. We're going to have some great writers and thinkers here in San Diego bringing their intelligence to bear on the future of the border region and the larger world in 30 years' time. And now, without further ado, let's go to the interview with Freeman Dyson. You have such a remarkable career. You've been an inspiration for many of us uh, younger physicists uh, throughout the generations. Uh, you have that rare quality, uh, which is not only do you have great uh, you know, longevity of your ideas and influence, but you've had the good fortune to to go through so many uh, different generations of physicists and see so many different levels of, of physics throughout your career. And you've not only had great impact on my career and other people's careers, but you've influenced popular culture in a way that few physicists have, in, in fact, um, I'm going to give a quote that Oliver Sacks, the late great Oliver Sacks, said of you. He said, a favorite word of Freeman's about doing science and being creative is the word subversive. Freeman, you, feel that it's rather important that not only you be, cre you be orthodox, but you also be subversive. And you, Freeman, have done that all your life. I wonder, this is me speaking now, if you've thought about the different ingredients behind your intellectual capacity, in particular for the creativity and imagination that we so deeply are interested here in the Arthur C. Clarke Center. Yeah, well, it's more true of, of, of Oliver Sacks than it is of me. And he's, he's, a lot, he's been a lot more subversive than I have. But uh, no, of course, I like to be subversive, but the most important work I did, in fact, was just the opposite. It, it was uh, ended up very conservative. I was hoping to, to upset the whole apple cart of physics, and what actually came out was that the old theories were good. And, and so I had to accept that, that that's the way nature thinks, and that's the way we have to think too. So 
so the actual work I was doing wasn't subversive at all, although my intentions were. <laughs> so you failed at being subversive. How radical of you. And that quite often happens, that you, you <laughs> hope to create a revolution and you end up t t deciding after all that, that the experts were right. And <laughs> so for the benefit of our, re our listeners who may not be familiar with the revolution you're talking about, could you expound upon that briefly? Yeah, well, this was in the 1940s that we had a theory of quantum electrodynamics, which was a theory of atoms and radiation, just a basic theory that was a required for understanding physics or understanding what atoms do and how, how they interact with light. But the theory was mathematically a mess. It, 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 it was producing stupid answers which are obviously wrong. So everybody was thinking that, oh, we have to have something radically new, some wonderful new ideas. And it turned out, uh, uh, my work was actually just to fix up the mathematics to get rid of a lot of the mathematical nonsense. And what was left over turned out to be correct. So in the end, we rehabilitated the old theory rather than creating a new one. <laughs> Very interesting. So one thing I'm always curious about and I tend to ask as one of my uh, favorite sawhorses on these podcasts is whether or not creativity is like mathematics or even great art in that it could be or can it be, in your opinion, can it be taught or is it something you can merely nurture uh, and if you're not born with a certain amount of creativity, imagination um, as a physicist uh, or as an intellect, can you, can you actually learn or teach somebody to be creative? So the answer is yes. I mean, surprisingly so, that uh, actually even Mozart had a teacher, <laughs> namely Haydn. I mean, uh, if you look at great musicians and great, great artists and great scientists, they all had mentors, and, at least as far as I know. And uh, in, in case... It is not, it's an unconscious process, of course. You don't sit down and teach how to make great music, but you just make some music yourself, try it out. It's a mostly matter of practice, but practice guided by other people's knowledge and experience. But I always say for myself that I, I, I do both calculating science and also writing English. And both cases, I, I always say it's the fingers that do the thinking, that uh, I, can, I can't really think about a problem in the abstract, just walking in the country and thinking. That doesn't work. I have to sit down at a desk and actually calculate something or actually write something. And as the fingers move, somehow the thoughts come. Mm. And I think that's true of many of us. That, uh, and of course, it's true of musicians, particularly. The fingers really are doing the thinking in the case of music. And I don't. Th I think science, in many ways, is is very much the same. Mm -hmm. Yeah, absolutely. <clears throat> okay. So, 
bringing or connecting those two um, digital practices of uh, using your fingers, uh, both mathematics and in literature writing. Um, how do you how do you find you know switching between the two? Is it a natural uh, phenomena for you that you that you're it's relatively simple for you to switch between between writing English as you say and 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 writing mathematics? No, it it was very much a, 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 a conscious decision. I, I was very happy doing science when I was young, and science is really a young man's game. And then. And there comes the midlife crisis when you're 40 years old and you suddenly realize you're not so smart as all these young people around you and you better find another line of work. And, and <laughs> so in my case, the other line of work was writing and it turned out to be a very productive enterprise. I, I wrote a number of books they sold well, and I found in many ways it opened writing books, opened doors, and it widened my circle of friends very much. So it became I became much more of a public figure rather as a writer than I was as a scientist. So I've enjoyed the second half of my life. It was a, 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 a conscious decision that science is really a young man's game. As writers can continue to write into, into their 90s, and they don't seem to deteriorate so much. Right. So in my case, it certainly has worked out very well. Wow. Very good. <clears throat> and the next question I want to ask is the um, is the broad panorama that is um, that is characteristic of your work from spanning. Uh, the very most uh, deepest underpinnings of the atom and the nucleus, and that all ranging all the way out into the deep interstellar voids. Um, and I wonder, you know, when you think about the, the distant future, you know, I've heard you speak about the the four revolutions that you've witnessed in your lifetime, uh, beginning with the space revolu- revolution and kind of the 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 generation that we're in now with the exploration of space uh, but even that started with you during the during um, and your your you experienced the early part of of the uh, space race and and even um, living in in, uh, in England during the the war and having to uh, undergo some of the uh, shelling by by Hitler's forces using uh, um, Werner von Braun's technology I wonder you mentioned once that you uh, in some ways, you were influenced by Arthur C. Clarke, who is, of course, the namesake of this of this organization that we're a part of. And I wonder, um, you know, uh, has it um, has this you know capacity for spanning the very small to the very large? Is that is that in any way did that just come naturally to you that that you were able to think the small picture to the big picture? Was that something that came easily to you? Yes, I mean, I have a short attention span. <laughs> I like to jump around from one thing to another. That, that, so that's just my temperament. And it's, so it means I don't generally think deep thoughts. Mm-hmm. I'm usually, usually just listening to the latest gossip, and, and <laughs> that's what I mostly do. I mean, it, 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 so there really are two kinds of scientists, the, the deep thinkers and the, the problem solvers. Mm-hmm. And the deep thinkers, of course, are the most important 
they're the people we really revere the most, people like Einstein and Heisenberg and mm-hmm. Dirac, the people who solve big problems by sitting down and really staying with one problem for 10 years until they have it. And that's not my style. I just, I, 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 I can work very hard on a problem for a few weeks and then either I solve it or I don't. In either case, I've, I'm finished. So I go ahead and do something else, which means that I don't dig so deep, but I do, I, 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 I spread more broadly. And this, this, I, I, we need both kinds, but I certainly have enormous respect for both for the good problem solvers, like my teacher, Hans Peter, mm-hmm. who was a, absolute champion problem solver mm-hmm. but also not a deep thinker and and, uh, and there are others of course like Ed Whitten my colleague and friend in Princeton who has done nothing but deep thinking all his life mm-hmm. so uh, one thing that you've been um, uh, particularly in the news for in the last uh, few years uh, especially so with the discovery of a remarkable star that seemed to have a lot of uh, unusual activity that's colloquially known as Tabby's star, uh, this this star that had activity that couldn't be explained, at least initially, by ordinary astrophysical phenomena. And it was conjectured there might be an advanced uh, signals of an advanced technology or civilization uh, that might be uh, somehow orbiting this star. Uh, and it sort of evoked a, a, a renewed or rekindled an interest in what are known as Dyson spheres. Uh, and I wondered if you could first uh, describe the inspiration for that. It has been said that you had credited science fiction author Olaf Stapledon uh, with perhaps uh, planting a seed that germinated the idea of the Dyson sphere. Um, uh, at first, and I wonder if could you describe the, the genesis of that idea? And then um, if we have time, I'd like to explore the topic of, of other civilizations and maybe sending life from Earth out to other civilizations. But first, on Dyson spheres, was that influenced in any way by, by the writing of uh, Olaf? Yes, well, this is a little bit complicated Mm -hmm. because the whole notion of Dyson sphere is a misunderstanding. And and so I I have to explain what I actually was was trying to do and what actually happened, which was quite different. So there was a couple of friends of mine, Philip Morrison and Giuseppe Cocconi, who were physicists at Cornell, they had the idea of listening for alien civilizations by radio. It was a time when radio telescopes were just getting good. So they proposed to listen for alien signals in the sky by radio, and that sounded like a very good good idea. And uh, so uh, I was quite excited about that. But I asked them the question, well, what do you do if the aliens don't want to communicate? And how do you detect non-communicating aliens? And the answer which I came to was you look for waste heat, that any advanced civilization, if it has a big industry or big population, will have to get rid of a lot of waste heat. And the only way you can get rid of waste heat on the large scale is radiating it into space. 
so it becomes infrared radiation. So what you should look for is infrared sources in the sky, objects in the sky which are infrared, radiating a lot of waste heat away in the form of infrared. So I suggested that and published this in magazine Science. That was about 50 years ago. And uh, so waited to see what would happen. But unfortunately, I used the word bios uh, biosphere to describe the habitat of these aliens you were looking for. They would be living in some kind of an environment and this environment, this habitat, would have an outside surface. And what you'd actually see was the warm outside surface of whatever the aliens had built. Mm -hmm. And But I used the word biosphere, and the science fiction writers misunderstood that to mean a big round ball, which, of course, it wasn't at all what I had in mind. And, and the real habitat would be much more like a just a collection of orbiting objects in space which would have a big surface, but they would have to be disconnected objects orbiting around so that they didn't require to be physically very strong. They, they could just be sort of big balloons with aliens living inside. Anyhow, so the science fiction writers got a wrong idea of that. But the, the right idea, the actual picture of aliens orbiting around stars in big balloons actually does come from a science fiction writer, Olaf Stapleton, and he was describing the, the, the advanced civilizations in a book called Star Maker, which is a, a book, one of my favorite science fiction books. I mean, it, it belongs to this genre, which I call theofiction. It's a, sort of not really science and fiction, but it's a combination of theology and fiction, which Stapleton was particularly good at. So that picture of the galaxy with its alien civilizations absorbing the light and turning, turning it into infrared, that's clearly described in, in that book of Stapleton. Mm -hmm. So it, it is, in fact, where I got it from. Mm -hmm. <laughs> Sticking on the uh, topic of uh, potential extraterrestrial intelligence and why we might not have seen um, uh, the, the evidence for such a, uh, existence of such extraterrestrial intelligence, there's the famous so-called Fermi paradox, which is um, if you calculate the abundance of alien civilizations potentially with uh, a modicum of, of realism in terms of physical properties that would be needed or even just the probability of such uh, civilizations arising, you come up with a probability that's uh, greater than zero. And Fermi's famous paradox was, you know, where are they? And if there's if there's even a slight probability, given enough time, there should be some some degree of, of probability that they would have visited and made contact or produced signals that are potentially visible uh, to Earth civilization. So I wonder, how do you reconcile the the or in your mind what what are some of the more plausible solutions to the Fermi paradox? I don't regard that really as a paradox. I think, I mean, it's a mystery. That's not the same thing. I mean, the, the, the universe is full of mysteries. That's, 
that's just one of the biggest of them, but there are all sorts of mysteries, and one of the big mysteries, of course, is the origin of life. We don't know how we originated, and we have no idea whether that was just a colossal accident which was enormously un unlikely, but it ha just it happened, and we are the result. Or it might be that it's quite a common occurrence and that for some reason life doesn't survive very long, that it has so many bad things can happen that life may be quite common in the universe, but it usually goes extinct. So, I mean, there are all sorts of possible explanations. So I don't regard it as strange in, uh, that we haven't discovered aliens. Mm -hmm. I just, it's a mystery why we don't find aliens, and I'm always expecting to find them, I think. I mean, but I won't claim I can calculate the probability. There's no way you can calculate a probability on the basis of one event, and we only know one kind of life, and that's us. And, and, uh, so whether it's probable or improbable, we just don't know. Mm -hmm. And the question of you know, whether or not we should be looking uh, for life that looks like us, uh, we've talked about this uh, at one time, but the, you know, is, is it, do you think it's a necessary precursor that life follow some sort of pattern that's reminiscent of the way nature seems to work on Earth? Absolutely not. I mean, to, nature always has more imagination than we have, and, and that's... So if ever this, if you if, if if you want to guess what you're going to discover, it's not really a discovery. Very good. Okay. <clears throat> so the next topic I wanted to talk up, uh, about was um, potential ways to visit or send our um, uh, portions of our species out into the. Uh, interstellar medium within our galaxy, and, and you had um, actually a very storied history with um, with spaceflight, including working on the so-called Orion Project. And I was wondering, with the recent developments, including as we record this in March of uh, of 2018, or only last month, did uh, Elon Musk and and SpaceX send a Tesla Roadster into uh, into the solar system with an orbit that he initially said at least would last for a billion years or so. Um, and the question of, of getting even beyond our solar system using uh, advanced propulsion systems. I wonder, first, could you describe what the Orion program uh, was about um, and uh, its current status uh, as well? And then we could get into um, where you see this might be going in the, in the future. Good. Well, of course, uh, Yuri Milner, the Russian supporter of wild ideas is 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 doing very well. He has uh, this breakthrough project, which he has just established with real money, and so he's actually pushing ahead with what he calls an Alpha Centauri mission. That is an interstellar mission, and I think this is wonderful. That is this is quite new. Only started a few months ago. And we have no idea really what's coming, going to come out of it, but it obviously is the right sort of a project if you want to go go ahead with ambitious n n new technology. 
What I was doing with Project Orion, that was now, what, 60 years ago, it uh, was very different. I mean, that was, uh, by comparison, a very modest project to use nuclear bombs to drive a spaceship. And that was something we really knew how to do. Nuclear bombs are, in a way, very simple things. They are, they are just big packages of energy that you can explode and you can use them for all kinds of purposes, particularly murdering people. So we wanted to use nuclear weapons for doing something different. It wasn't murdering people. And uh, so the, the, the project was actually started here in San Diego with the General Atomic Company, which is still here. Mm -hmm. and, and so we actually had a project to build this nuclear-powered spaceship, which we called Orion. But that was not an interstellar mission. It was very definitely solar system. It, it, it could reach velocities of the order of 30 kilometers per second, which is the speed the Earth goes around the sun. So it's a very good speed for a solar system mission, but it's not at all good for interstellar. So Orion, in, in, from, uh, from that point of view, was a, a sort of rather simple and conservative project. It would have had enormous consequences. It would have meant che really cheap and massive missions inside the solar system, visiting planets and satellites and comets. So it was a great shame it didn't go forward. On the other hand, the reason for stopping it was in fact a good reason that it was extraordinarily messy when you explode bombs all over the place. You needed a large number of bombs for each mission, the order of 2,000 per mission. So it meant a huge amount of radioactivity being spewed around all over the place, including the planet Earth. So we calculated what we knew about the effects of radioactivity on human health. And as far as we could tell, it, it, it worked out that every mission we flew, we would probably kill roughly one person. Mm. But with that, with considerable uncertainty, might have been as many as 10, might possibly have been 100. So anyway, I thought it was quite unacceptable. And I think the public considered it unacceptable then and even much more so now. So I, I would say it's a, a dead project for good reasons. It simply was too filthy to be tolerated by a civilized society. So anyway, that, so it's, it's a, it's a, I don't regret having worked on it. It was exciting at the time, but I don't regret having killed it. I actually testified in the Senate hearing to ratify the Test Ban Treaty, which made Orion impossible. So I'm sort of proud of that, too. <laughs> Very good. Uh, we'll get back to uh, politics a little bit later, hopefully. Um, but, um, well, actually, well, why don't we go to that now? So you mentioned the, these projects, which in some sense were nucleated either by General Atomics. I've mentioned the uh, connection to the SpaceX, which is a private company. 
Um, and it seems like the uh, – in many ways, a lot of big projects are being undertaken not by governments, not by entities that have you know, vastly superior fortunes even though there are you know, very many wealthy uh, uh, billionaires that are funding prizes like Breakthrough Listen and, uh, and also Elon Musk's for-profit co- companies. What do you think of the uh, new money kind of influence that's occurring in, in science to – uh, guide projects and directions and pursue uh, goals of philanthropists rather than goals of nations as things were, might have done in the in the early parts of your career? Yes, well, I'm all in favor of private money, but that's not new, of course. I mean, astronomy has always been supported with private money. The, Galileo, the, right? <laughs> the, the, the Keck telescopes in, in Hawaii, which are doing wonderful work in astronomy. These are ground-based telescopes. They were all paid for by Mr. Keck. Mm-hmm. We have a, good, a long tradition in astronomy of being supported with private money. Mm-hmm. And it's certainly private money is much more pleasant to work with. You don't have to write proposals all the time. and You don't have to write progress reports every three months. It's a, a much more efficient use of money if you can get it privately. Mm-hmm. On the other hand, <coughs> it's also true that the government is doing extremely well. Mm-hmm. People, the public is not aware of how wonderfully well the government has been doing in recent years. I mean, the Kepler mission is a great example, that mission which discovered 4,000 planets around other stars. That was all done with government money very efficiently. I mean, so the government actually is good at that too. It's, it's, we need both. One shouldn't put them down just because they happen to be governments. And mm-hmm. What the government is not do, uh, good at is taking risks. And so if you have something which is risky, then much better do it privately. Mm-hmm. And that's why the private companies are doing so well at the moment. Because if you want to have a really much cheaper space propulsion system, especially space launch system, which is really cheap, mm-hmm. you've got to make it risky. And because and, most of the expense of the government programs come from this being so risk averse, everything has to be checked over 25 times, and the paperwork <laughs> is horrendous. And that's the consequence of not taking risks. So that's why the Private companies can do much better mm-hmm. at things like space launch, which they're starting to get doing now. Mm-hmm. Being risk averse is, of course, just a way of making everything expensive. <laughs> so switching, I'd like to switch from a uh, controversial subject like politics to a less controversial one, religion, Good. if you don't mind. Um, so uh, you're, you're known um, for practicing uh, Christian as a practicing Christian or a non-denominational Christian, I guess specifically. So I guess, uh, well, maybe instead of me telling you what you are, could you could you uh, maybe describe uh, the role that religion plays in your life or has traditionally played in your life, uh, if you don't mind? And then uh, I have some follow-up questions on the relationship between religion and science, and uh, more interest to me of more interest to me, the relationship of scientists to religion. Um, I think I think it's actually a fascinating subject. So how do you describe your, is it, is it, was it from your upbringing or, or how was your upbringing uh, sort of theologically speaking and then how did you evolve over time? 
Yeah, well, uh, I, I, I would say, answer the second question first. It, I'm a non-believing but practicing Christian, and, and <laughs> which I think is, is actually what a very large fraction of the practicing Christians are. I mean, in my church in Princeton, which is Presbyterian, they, they, they don't care whether you believe everything. That's not really the point. It's a community, and, and it's the, 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 the community of people who have a loyalty to the church which is based on other things rather than belief that uh, the community it has a very important youth component it takes care of teenagers there's a lot of activities for teenagers in the church they have wonderful music they have several choirs and they have of course the liturgy the the order of service, and above all, they have the, the literature, the Bible, and all the, uh, the Bible is still the greatest work of English literature in, in, in both historically and at the present day. And it, that's what the religion actually gives us, whether or not you believe in the details of the whether Jesus really existed or whether he was divine or human. And I, I'm simply not interested in that. I think uh, clearly Jesus did exist and he's a wonderful source of wisdom. And so I, I, I have enormous respect for him, but I don't worship him. Okay. And I think the same is true of Jews, of course, even more, that I mean, many of my Jewish friends are practicing but not believing. That's, that's, that's not at all unusual. Mm -hmm. And that's probably true of Muslims too. And, and anyhow, I mean, it's, it's, uh, I think that's a happy state of affairs. You don't have to worry about whether everything you're told is true. And you certainly don't have to blame people who think differently from yourself. I should also mention, I mean, that uh, I was brought up in the Church of England, which is, in England, of course, religion is sort of a question of class, that if you're upper class, you're Church of England, if you're lower class, you're Presbyterian or Baptist. And so it's very much of a, a, a social distinction. And so I had, had a sister who became Catholic because she couldn't stand the snobbery in the Episcopalian church. So she became a Catholic, and so uh, when I was in England visiting my sister, I became Catholic too. I always mm. went to Mass with my sister, felt very comfortable there, and now I have a daughter who is a Presbyterian minister, so I feel very comfortable with her, and when I go to, to hear her preach in her church, and... Uh, so it, it doesn't matter to me whether it's Catholic or Protestant or <laughs> Episcopalian, whatever you want, or, or, or for that matter, Jewish. Mm -hmm. I wonder, you know, <clears throat> many of our colleagues don't share the ecumenical thoughts that you've 
uh, expressed. I always find it ironic because you know most universities, at least in America, were set up first as theological uh, seminaries, essentially. Columbia, Princeton has a, a very uh, storied history with the Princeton Theological Seminary. Uh, our greatest universities were sort of established in this way, and now it's it's basically impossible to you know to find religious studies on campus, or, or at least on many campuses that I'm familiar with, and I, and I wonder if that's uh, a, a product of the you know more secular age that we've that we now live in, but in particular, you know I've heard it said about the National Academy of Sciences in the United States that over um, 93 or so percent of scientists do not have a belief in God, either are atheist or do not um, uh, or, or, ag- or agnostic, with only seven percent, that is to say, having uh, a belief in theism uh, as, as a traditional definition of, of the word. I, I bet the same is true of the uh, fellows of the Royal Society as well, that there's a large number of, of non-believers and maybe even active non-believers, that is to say, not even not believing, but but trying to convince others not to believe, a sort of and they're sometimes described by your fellow countryman Richard Dawkins as, as uh, militant atheists. And, and I wonder what what are your thoughts about about that and why there is um, so much tension? I mean, it's 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 almost as bad as the the tension is between you know philosophers and physicists. Um, it's actually much worse than that. But uh, why do you think there is such a such a um, an innate resistance? To, to religion on the part of scientists uh, as, a, as a general rule? Yes, I think it's ter- tremendously exaggerated by the, the media. I mean, mm. uh, Richard Dawkins, who happens to, to be the most notorious of these people, I mean, he's a militant atheist, and uh, I think he does a lot of harm. He's telling young people, you have to make a choice, either religion or science, but not both. Mm-hmm. And I think that does a lot of harm. He actually he turns off a lot of young people who happen to be religious believers thinking they can't t- be scientists, which is absolutely not true, of course. Mm-hmm. In the past, of course, I mean, Newton, of course, was a, a very pious Christian and, and a very serious Christian. And uh, most of the great scientists of the past were believers and, until recently. The, the, the change came in the, in the 19th century. In, in the case of Princeton, Princeton University was a religious foundation. What happened in the 19th century was it became secularized, and then the, 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 uh, the theological seminary was founded to take care of the religious part of Princeton University. Mm -hmm. It was really a split in the university. The theological seminary became independent, does the theology, Princeton is secular, Mm -hmm. and they live side by side. And so that's been the solution in many places. So you separate out the religious part. And the reason why that happened is, of course, very complicated. It's certain. It is It's it's partly just due to the American Constitution, which makes a separation between politics and religion, which is certainly good, and on the whole healthy. Yes. But uh, mm-hmm. 
And so that encouraged the universities to become secular. But of course, the same thing happened in France and in other parts of the world in, in, in a similar fashion around the same time. Indeed. So um, <clears throat> when, you, uh, when you look around the scientific landscape, at least in my field of cosmology, uh, there's a notion that has become uh, almost synonymous with the Big Bang Theory, which is, uh, which is the epoch of what's called inflation, this early uh, super rapid expansion of space and time that is theorized to take place in the very first few nano, 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 nanoseconds after the Big Bang. And I wonder uh, your thoughts on, not on inflation, but on one of the consequences of inflation, at least as as proposed by many of the theorists, including Alan Guth and, and Andre Linde and others who first worked out the details of the inflationary uh, theory down to the level of uh, perturbation theory and structure formation. And that is the so-called multiverse, which seems to suggest that uh, that our universe may not be alone. So not only may, might there be a Fermi paradox within our galaxy or even between galaxies, but there might be uh, additional room and real estate for Fermi's question to, to be asked, uh, which is that there might be an infinite number or functionally infinite number, 10 to the 500th universes have been suggested as not implausible according to the laws of string theory and uh, relativistic early universe cosmology. I wonder, first of all, uh, your, your thoughts on the multiverse, uh, if, you, if you have any, and then a uh, follow-up question about the similarities between the sort of um, the, the ability to test or falsify scientific theories such as the multiverse and where they fit into uh, sort of the orthodox uh, conjectures of modern science. So first on the multiverse and then if we have time to talk about uh, whether or not it is uh, how it fits into traditional definitions of science. Yes, well, because I'm very skeptical about the th theories in general. And uh, so, I mean, uh, inflation is a beautiful idea. And it's not really a theory. It's a sort of a model. It's a, it's a mathematical scheme, which is extremely simple and there's really very little evidence from observations that it's true. I mean, it's a model that's consistent with the observations, but it's probably much simpler than anything that nature would have devised. Nature has a habit of being complicated. And so when we look at things for the first time, we usually have a simple model in mind. And so we look at a star and we think it's very simple, it's uh, just a big ball of gas, and you make model, models of it. The problem is that people who work with models tend to believe the models. It's, it's, it's almost impossible to work seriously on a problem without believing more than is really justified. And so it, it tends to become then a, almost a religion that... <laughs> that you have a, a mathematical scheme which you thought becomes in your own mind somehow true, and then uh, you, you, you think about it as if it were real nature. But when the time finally comes and you do the observations, nature usually says it's wrong. And that's why I, I tend to, 
to believe much more what nature is saying than I believe what the astronomers are saying. So that's a, that's my my own temperament. But the fact is that astronomy is amazingly rich. There are so many wonderful things we are observing within inside the universe, and those that's what I'm ex- excited about. Then there are all these other things which are beyond the universe, like what they call the multiverse, for which we have no observations, but nothing but mathematical speculation. I don't find that so interesting, and it's uh, almost certainly it has some elements of truth, but most unlikely that it's anything like the real truth. And, And so anyhow, I mean, as far as I'm concerned, I leave it alone. Other people take it much more seriously than I do. Mm-hmm. Of course, two of your countrymen uh, had sort of a difference of opinion. So one was uh, Sir Arthur Eddington, who said, never believe an observation until it's been proven by a theory, um, which, of course, is the opposite of most uh, ways that we think of the scientific method. And then uh, Karl Popper also uh, said, uh, well, he said in contrast that essentially the predictions of a theory which cannot be uh, refuted by observation or tested by evidence, that such theories and the models that are spawned by the by these theories uh, would not uh, qualify in his definition as, as counting in, as a scientific pursuit. It might be a fun parlor trick. It might be uh, give, give uh, employment to, uh, to astrologers and other soothsayers, as, as Popper called them. But I wonder if this notion of falsifiability, does that hold any resonance to you, in, in your opinion? Did, oh, yes. It is. No, I, I mean, I am really a, 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 a agree with Popper a, 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 that, that science ought to be verifiable. And But there is, of course, a, 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 an amazing fact, which that somehow uh, goes in, in, in the other direction, is the fact that mathematics has been so amazingly successful in describing nature. And so there is some kind of, I would say, a, a really a major mystery that uh, so much of what we've invented as mathematicians, what looked like pure mathematics, Finally, after after a hundred years or so, we find it's all there in nature, and so there is a possibility. This is, goes against Popper that by pure mathematics you can actually predict what nature is going to do, and that that does it does work. Mm-hmm. So, to, to, so Popper is not the whole story, and. Right. It's, the real world is a mixture of Popper and Eddington. And <laughs> <laughs> that's, of course, that's what makes it so beautiful, that there, there are these mysteries we don't understand. I would like to say science is really not about things we understand. Science is about things we don't understand. That's what makes it exciting. And in that sense, of course, science and religion are not so different, that both science and religion are mysteries We're we have this amazing ability which we can't explain to find out 
how, th- how nature thinks. And I mean, it, it's, I've always liked to say, I mean, uh, we, we just are monkeys who came down from the trees rather recently. And, and it's amazing that a monkey can write a symphony or, mm-hmm. <laughs> or, 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 or invent string theory or anything else. I mean, the, the imagination which we have wasn't required to survive in the jungle or when we climbed or when we were living up in the trees. And somehow this imagination is a gift from nature which we don't understand, like many other things. Mm-hmm. Uh, one more question before we turn to the final uh, question. <laughs> so I guess the penultimate question. If you, if you knew that there was a God, uh, what question would you most like the answer to if you could sort of circumvent all the scientific method and hard work, if you could just ask a question uh, of this omniscient, omnipotent being, uh, what would that question be? Oh well, of course, it's <laughs> it's, it's, it's 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 a hard choice. There's so so many mysteries, and so uh, I don't know which I would choose. But perhaps, uh, how did life begin? I think would be sort of number one in my mind, and. He, he 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 probably knows. <laughs> <laughs> One would hope so. Meet the job description. Okay, so I want to spend the last few minutes talking about uh, prizes, and uh, you know that I'm quite interested in in prizes, and and you've won so many of them. It would take uh, the remaining uh, all the remaining time we have just to, just to list them, um, including one recent one that I do want to bring up, but. Um, in particular, the, what I consider to be the world's most prestigious accolade of any kind, the Nobel Prize, you once said, I think it's almost true without exception that if you want to win a Nobel Prize, you should have a long attention span, get a hold of some deep and important problem, and stay with it for 10 years. That wasn't my style. You've talked about that. But I guess it's clear to me, or it seems clear to me, that you never really saw winning the Nobel Prize as a priority. Many people, as you know, have considered that you should have uh, had a share of the Nobel Prize that went to uh, the folks uh, along with whom uh, you created uh, quantum electrodynamics or the theory of quantum electrodynamics. I wonder how this, you know, your losing of the Nobel Prize in, in, my, in my language, um, does that have any effect on you or, or where do you see the role of such of such prizes. Um, some say it's a curse to win a Nobel Prize. T.S. Eliot, who won the Nobel Prize for Literature, said the Nobel Prize is a ticket to one's own funeral. No one has ever done anything after they won it. <laughs> You've had such a remarkable career even since uh, since those heady days of inventing quantum electrodynamics. So I wonder, what are your feelings on prizes such as the Nobel Prize? Well, I was recently uh, uh, there's a, a, a wonderful uh, was a Jocelyn Bell. She married Burnell, so she's called Jocelyn Burnell Bell. now, mm-hmm. and she's the one who discovered pulsars. The, That's right. The, 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 uh, pulsing radio sources in, in the sky, which turn out to be rotating neutron stars, and they have an enormous importance in the dynamics of the universe and, and in all sorts of ways. It was one of the biggest discoveries ever made in astronomy. And she did not get the Nobel Prize. Instead, her supervisor, mm-hmm. Anthony Hewish, got the prize. And she was barely mentioned. She, she was then a graduate student when she did the work. Anyway, 
So that's sort of a famous example of a wrong person getting the prize. And she was visiting Princeton recently. She's a, a, a wonderful lady. She's she was only about about twenty when she did the work, and and uh, now she's uh, in her seventies, I guess, but still going strong. Anyway, she was visiting Princeton. Of course, the students asked her the inevitable question: "What do you feel about not getting the Nobel, Nobel Prize?" And and she said, "Oh, it's wonderful, you know." It's so much nicer to have people ask you why you didn't get the Nobel Prize <laughs> than to have them ask you why you did. <laughs> that's, I feel the same way. It is uh, anyhow. Uh, but in fact, of course, we didn't worry about it. It, was, it really wasn't in our minds when we were doing the work. And, and it, 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 I think it's become much more... Worried about these days somehow just because of the media. The media pays so much more attention to it than they used to, and I, I, I don't. In those times when I was a graduate student, I don't think it actually was t talked about so much. Certainly, we weren't thinking about it much, and it's certainly true. I did not deserve it because I was mostly just. Cleaning up, sort of cleaning up the mathematical mess. It was all just mathematical details. What I was doing, all the ideas were came from the other three. Mm. So I'm not unhappy with that at all. Um, well, then you'll be distressed to know that uh, on a new website, which is called losingthenobelprize.org, uh, you are one of the people who has suggested that uh, should receive a Nobel Prize um, by the, uh, the the Royal Swedish Academy of Sciences. So I know that will uh, not mean that much to you, but but uh, for many people, they they do see that as a as a wrong that should be righted and injustice that uh, could be potentially corrected still. Um, so I, I don't expect a comment on that. But one thing I would like to uh, uh, to draw attention to is last week it was announced that you won the Heinlein Prize. Uh, and so uh, I want to read the citation. I believe I have it on my phone here. Let me look this up. Okay, so I wanted to read it. This is from, oops. Okay, the headline is, <clears throat> this is from the National Space Society Organization. Uh, and the headline is Freeman Dyson, famed physicist, wins the National Space Society's prestigious Robert A. Heinlein Memorial Award. So the Space Society members have voted to give Freeman Dyson the prestigious Robert A. Heinlein Memorial Award. This award honors the work that he has done as a groundbreaking physicist and mathematician and as a major thought leader in the science and space communities over half a century. And there will be a presentation in uh, Los Angeles on May 24th. Uh, through May 27th, and you'll be celebrated there. I wonder if you could give us a, a preview in any way of the remarks that you might be thinking about for your acceptance speech of this wonderful award. Yeah, well, of course. It, no, I have enormous respect for Heinlein. I, I mean, I do read quite a lot of science fiction, and Heinlein was very good as a, as a spinner of stories, and, uh, he, he, uh, and I think science fiction has been important, still is important for getting kids interested in science and uh, for getting the public 
interested in supporting science. It's a, a lot. A, 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 actually, I find that the people I most enjoy reading are people like uh, uh, what's her? oh I forget the names. It doesn't matter. The two two ladies whom I know personally who write what I call theofiction of the fiction which is more concerned with philosophy and theology rather than science. And, and uh, Heinlein was the old-fashioned kind who just had, had people strutting around in, in space. <laughs> Anyhow, what I'm going to talk about at the ceremony is, is a sort of an out, outrageous comedy about what might happen in the future. That's what I think uh, science fiction can can contribute to somehow a lighter touch, so you don't uh, doesn't all have to be so serious. And uh, so I I I I I'm, I'm promoting something called the Noah's Ark egg, which is a vehicle for getting embryos into space very cheaply. So I think it might, in fact, have an important part of our future. I mean, the important thing is not humans going into space. The important thing is life as a whole. It, if, you want to, if you want to flourish in the universe, one species won't cut it. It's, you have to have a million species living together. That's when nature really can take off and evolve. Evolution is not something that's done by one species. Evolution requires a whole ecology, and it's a very complicated and very powerful creative thing. And I think the Noah's Ark egg might be the way to do it. Anyhow, that's what I'll be talking about. Very good. Well, I know that you said in the beginning that you like to get the bad news first, but now the bad news comes at the end that this interview has to come to an end, <laughs> uh, despite uh, uh, my desire to very much continue to pick your brain. But you'll be around San Diego, I know, a lot more in the future as a scholar in residence here at the University of California, San Diego. And I appreciate your visit and congratulations on winning the Highland Award as well. Thank you, Freeman. Thank you. This has been Into the Impossible, a podcast of the Arthur C. Clarke Center for Human Imagination at UC San Diego. We'd like to thank our guest, Dr. Freeman Dyson, and acknowledge our generous patrons and sponsors, including Viasat Inc., members of the Founders Orbit, and the James B. Axe Family Foundation. Your support is much appreciated. To find out more about the Clark Center and other exciting projects, research, and programs, as well as how to support our mission, please visit imagination.ucsd.edu. Audio production is by me, Patrick Coleman, produced by Patrick Coleman and Brian Keating. And thank you for listening. The only thing we can be sure of about the future is that it will be absolutely fantastic. Five, four, three, two, one.